Hello and welcome to episode 17 of The Five By, your source of bi-weekly rapid-fire board game reviews and a proud member of the Inside Voices podcast network. This week we're super excited to be joined by Catherine Harmon, who graciously agreed to share her thoughts on number 9 with us. We also have Lindsay reviewing Samara, while I talk about building the perfect mountain home in Caverna, Cave vs. Cave. Stephanie takes things to a slightly larger scale to talk about putting together an exposition in World's Fair 1893. And finally, rounding out the show, Sarah heads into our personal library to talk about Bring Your Own Book, a game with the potential to change based on what players bring to read. It's a great show this week, so please sit back and enjoy. Hello, it's Lindsay here, and today I'm talking about Samara, a rather nifty worker placement game published by Kowali and Tasty Minstrel Games. It's designed by Korn Van Morsel with artwork by Philip Kostov and Josh T. McDowell. It's 2-5 player and lasts around 25-50 minutes. I got a hold of a copy of Samara at Gen Con when I stopped by the TMG booth. Initially I wasn't quite sure. Worker placement is pretty common and something about the box art didn't really thrill me. It wasn't bad by any means but just not the kind of thing where I'd say, this looks amazing. But there was a time trap mechanics, the worker placement aspect that sparked my interest when I saw it demoed. And as for the box art, well by now I've learned that amazing art is definitely not the be all and end all, and I'll never judge a game by the cover. I was surprised to find out this game was originally kickstarted and published in 2015 by Dutch publishing company Kuale, and I've never seen or heard of it until now. It's only had 305 board game geek ratings, but it seems to be getting a little bit more coverage now it's with TMG. I chose to talk about it for this episode because I was pleasantly surprised by it, and it's actually the game I've played the most in the last few weeks. It's not groundbreaking or outstanding, but something about it has just clicked with me and I've really enjoyed playing it so far. So in the game you're building an assessment of Samara, starting with two workers each. The central board consists of four rows of tiles that are randomly placed. Additional tool tokens are shuffled and placed on the designated tiles and you have three mini boards depicting the calendar year next to the central boards. You begin with two workers on the lowest part of the calendar and usual workers to pick up tools or tiles. Most tiles require a specific set of tools to pick up and all the worth of value points at the end of the game. Each turn the calendar board shift and on your turn you can decide what month to place your workers on to receive your desired tile on the central board. For example you may decide to move two workers to July to get the tile that corresponds with July from row 2 because you have two workers. You then have to wait until July moves to the present to take your next turn. On your next turn you may want to send your two workers on vacation to January to join a lone worker. So by the time January moves to the present you can take tiles from row three with three workers. As I mentioned, you only start with two workers, but there are ways to increase to four during the game. It sounds a little fiddly, and it's really, really not, trust me, it's just a really hard one to sound by. I play a lot of work placement games, and even though it's a mechanic I enjoy, there's a lot of work placement games out there, but the time track aspect in Samara definitely refreshes a fairly standard mechanic. It opens up an avenue of thought about where you want to go and what you want to achieve. I really enjoy the ever-changing turn order aspect because you have to be constantly alert. And in a game where there are no rounds and it's simply over when all the tiles have been bought, it ensures that the game doesn't feel monotonous or dull. Because the tiles are shuffled and randomised every game, there's always going to be different locations from the last game, so there is a good amount of replayability. Not an infinite amount, but I'll come on to that soon. I also appreciate the fact that even though it is a game where you're simply grabbing tiles for points, it's fun, and it just worked for me. Some of the tiles are higher value, meaning they're more difficult to buy, but will score you the best points. But a couple of tiles were a little bit confusing to me, like a low value tile requires every tool to build and ends up on the top row, so it's difficult to get and there's no real gain from that tile. 
and it's only a minor niggle as all the tiles are worth something and all the points add up in the end. I like that some of them have positive and negative effects but what I notice in a two player game is those effects don't matter as much and you're really just buying them for the value. I can imagine in a two player plus game the effects will be more useful and we'll add some conflicts and a little take that. I think this could be a very good introductory worker placement game as it's fairly lightweight. For gamers like me who have played a lot of worker placement and also enjoy heavier games, it's been a good one to play as more of an activity or do whilst watching a movie or listening to some music. And where I have been tired and overwhelmed with life recently, it's a nice one just to chill out with that doesn't take too long to play but still feels like I've had some game time. And you do have to be on the ball with it, but you can kind of chill out at the same time. After not being particularly taken with the box art, I was really happy with the contents. I love the worker board. Before the tiles are placed, it looks like a tapestry of goats and it's really quaint. The maples are gorgeously vivid and included pink and purple maples, which appeal to me. And the components themselves are really nice quality. For the amount of times you have to move the calendar boards around, you wouldn't end up with a fair amount of wear and tear, so pretty sturdy cardboard is good stuff. I think the only drawback to the game is if you are a more experienced gamer and you play often, it will lose some replayability. I've now figured out a good strategy that I've seen no reason to veer from. So for me, it feels as there's not much more to learn at this point. But there's actually an expansion, which I don't think is available yet. And I would actually want to get this. I think expansions with the ability to increase difficulty level or bring new strategies will be necessary in maintaining the interest and replayability for regular and more experienced gamers. So overall, Samara is a fun worker placement game where the time tracker makes all the difference in refreshing the gameplay. It's a good gateway worker placement game and very easy to learn and play. There's not a great deal of conflict in a two-player game, and the effects on the tiles are of not much consequence. The theme isn't very strong, but it works nicely, and I've really enjoyed this game so far. If you want to see any more from me, you can pop my Instagram and YouTube channel Shiny Half Meeples on my blog www.shinyhalfmeeplesblog.wordpress.com or follow me on Twitter, capital S, capital H, Meeples. Bye for now! In the late 1990s, I purchased a small plastic game console on a keychain that played one game, Tetris. The tiny monochromatic screen would feed Tetris pieces, beginning at a sedate pace, and then drop pieces more and more quickly until eventually your reflexes failed and you lost the game. This game was a bit of a passion for our household, and at any random time, two of us could be found sitting side by side on the couch battling the game to clear row after daunting row of pieces. Quick decision-making and deeply intuitive understanding of spatial relationships served us well in our quest for the highest of high scores. Similarly, Number 9 is an abstract game that uses spatial relationships to confound solitaire players attempting to build pieces on higher, more lucrative levels. Played with a small deck of 20 cards, consisting of two copies of each of the number pieces 0 through 9, the game takes 10 minutes to play, but much longer to master. More importantly, this game can be played one-handed, leading it to be our go-to snack game, played while drinking tea and eating toasted sesame bagels. We only spilled tea on it once, and one four-piece came out a little bit the worse for wear. I suspect this game will be a forever game, so who cares if it gets a little worn around the edges. Published by Abacus Beal and brought to the U.S. by Z-Man Games, created by designer Peter Wickman and illustrated by the company Fiore GmbH, Number 9 is everything I want in a simple abstract puzzle game. The rules of the game are quite simple. Each turn, a new card is revealed showing a number piece from 0 to 9. You take the matching piece from the box and add it to your tableau, connected to an existing piece on the ground floor or on a higher level. The only rule for placement is that at least one small square of each piece must be orthogonally touching another. 
and any pieces placed on higher levels must be completely supported by at least two pieces below them. No placing a piece directly on top of its copy. When you have finished the deck of 20 cards, you add up your score, getting nothing for pieces placed on the first level, one times the number for pieces on the second level, two times the number for pieces on the third level, and so on. Regardless of where you put those pesky zeros, they are always going to be worth nothing. Nines, on the other hand, are going to be quite lucrative if you can get them on the third or fourth level. Scoring at the end of the game can be an exercise in mental math. This is an excellent game for practicing multiplication and addition. I can imagine it being a great way to have kids practice math in a fun way. This game is essentially side-by-side solitaire, so how does it deliver such compelling gameplay? I like to say that number nine was play-tested to within an inch of its life. The diabolical ways that pieces do and don't work together still surprise me 150 plays into this game. Obviously created by someone who thought a great deal about tessellations and the ways that these shapes should and shouldn't fit together, shows this game for the masterpiece that it is. Twos and fours connect beautifully, and each shape fills into its copy, but how long are you willing to wait for that second three to arrive? It could be the last card in the deck, severely hobbling your game. Leave a bunch of gaps and spaces on your first level, and you will be battling for the remainder of the game, as the next levels are impacted by those vacancies. Nines are tantalizing and blocky spacemakers, so placing them on the top level for points makes creating a solid base more challenging. But it is almost always the right choice. As for wrong choices, this game has zero, but if I get really picky, I wish that someone would build an app for this game. I don't often like the way that apps are pushing their way into an analog space, but Number 9 is a game that could use an app to good advantage. For one thing, the Solitaire game suggests that 100 points or more is an excellent score. Depending on the order of the deck, 100 points is a pipe dream much of the time. An app could run the deck and then give you a range of achievements for that particular game. The app could also include a quick scoring system that would accurately add up the pieces on each level to score. It could keep track of your scores over time. That could be a positive or a negative for sure. This game has fundamentally changed how I think about numbers. Before number 9, the number 7 didn't send shivers of terror down my spine. Now it does. Luckily, I like a game with a little brain burn. And until next time, you can find me at Kybrarian on Twitter or Cat Library on BGG. Hello, 5 by listeners. It's Ruth here, and this week I wanted to talk about a two-player game from Uwe Rosenberg. The particular Rosenberg two-player game I'm talking about is Caverna, Cave vs. Cave, a smaller, streamlined relative of Ui's larger game about mining, farming, and adventuring dwarfs. Published in 2017, Cave vs. Cave pits two players against each other in a contest to create the most impressive mountain dwelling. The game uses what it calls a workerless worker placement mechanic. Essentially, available actions are represented by tiles, and when a player chooses an action, they take the tile from the display and place it in front of them, thereby removing it from the options available to their opponent. Each round, players will have between two and four actions to use, depending on how far along they are in the game, and they will use these actions to gather resources, excavate further into the mountain, furnish new rooms in the areas they've excavated, and so on. At the end of eight rounds, players will add up the points printed on the rooms they've built, and add that to the amount of gold they've managed to collect. And whoever has the largest total is declared owner of the most impressive cave. Now the game also has solo roles, but I haven't yet tried this way of playing, so I'm not going to be speaking to how it works or how it feels to play. With the exception of a set starter group available from setup, the room tiles in the game come out in a completely random order. 
This is because the reverse of each room tile is a depiction of an unexcavated cave area. You see, these tiles are shuffled and randomly placed onto the player boards at the start, and so particular room tiles only become available when a player chooses to excavate a cave space, removes the tile, and then flips it over to reveal what's on the other side, adding it to the rooms available for both players to build. I really like how this works, as it means you can't rely on particular rooms being available early or even at all during your game, and so players have to adapt to what's available when figuring out how they want to play. It stops there from being a perfect ideal strategy because of this unreliable timing. After all, if both players are slow to excavate, then very few extra tiles are going to be around, and who knows when the one you're waiting for will actually show up. And the available actions kind of work similarly. They're divided into groups depending on whether they belong to the two, three, or four action per round phases of the game, and then within each group they're shuffled and randomly placed on the combination action board slash round marker. At the beginning of each round, a new action tile is flipped over to mark the progress of the game and also make it available to players. So once again, you can't rely on particular actions being available at exact times. Cave vs. Cave also has a resource track as opposed to having lots of wooden components for resources. This helps cut down on table space and components for sure, but the more interesting thing that it does, in my opinion, is it sets a cap on the amount of resources a player can earn. Everything maxes out at 9, with gold maxing at 19, and so players have to manage their resources and their conversions wisely to ensure they don't waste an action earning things they can't store. Add in the fact that the rooms also have specific structural requirements in terms of what walls are required to be there before they can be built, and there's a good amount of things for a player to manage. It's not particularly complicated, especially as the game's complexity starts lower and builds nicely as it progresses through the addition of extra actions and extra tiles. And it stops the game from feeling too stripped down that there's so much going on. Now, does the game replace Caverna? No, but that's not what I was looking for from it. This isn't my first Caverna, but is instead a separate game in the same world that focuses on building the perfect place to live in the mountains that just happens to be ritzier than the one next door that belongs to that guy you don't like. It doesn't feel like the same game, and I'm okay with that. I may eventually try to use it as a stepping stone to introduce my husband to Caverna, but it's going to be a pretty big jump in complexity and in playtime, so don't look at Cave vs. Cave just as a means to an end. And that would be doing this game a disservice. It's a really nice two-player resource management game with some fun, puzzly, spatial aspects. And it lets you build something throughout the game, which I always appreciate. There are plenty of satisfyingly frustrating moments when your opponent takes the action you really needed and you're forced to reassess. And you add in a 30-40 to 40 minute playtime and this game's a winner in my mind. We've played it at local bars and been able to easily make it work on their tables, something I couldn't imagine doing with its older sibling. And so we're able to scratch that worker placement cave delving itch while enjoying a tasty brew. At around $25, Cave vs. Cave is well worth checking out if any of this sounds interesting. And who doesn't want to build a secret chamber into their new mountain home? So until next time, I'm prepping for that board game thing, a local gaming event, where I'll hopefully be hanging out with Sarah, but you can find me at sequentialgamer.wordpress.com or on Twitter as Roof. That's an R, four O's, and an F. Thanks for listening. I live in the city that hosted the 1968 World's Fair, San Antonio, Texas. The Tower of the Americas, built for Hemisphere, remains an icon of the San Antonio skyline 
And now it's home to a revolving restaurant, which totally taps into my love of late 60s kitsch. Although Hemisphere 68 attracted 6.3 million visitors and brought international attention to the Alamo City, attendance never really matched predictions, and the fair lost $7.5 million. By the late 60s, the idea of the World's Fair was in decline. But just 75 years prior, Chicago held the World's Columbian Exposition, or Chicago World's Fair, which opened May 1st, 1893, and ran for six months. On the busiest day of that fair, it set a world record for outdoor event attendance, drawing 750,000 people. The 1893 World's Fair echoed the exciting changes that were just around the corner in the arts, sciences, and engineering. We saw the first Ferris wheel, the first commercial movie theater, the first moving walkway, and the World's Fair introduced us to Little Egypt and her belly dance that would later be filmed by Thomas Edison. We were nearing the dawn of a new century, and the fair echoed that perfectly. In the game World's Fair 1893, designed by J. Alex Kevern, players act as organizers of the fair, working to make sure their grand exhibits are put on display for all to see, gaining them the best reputation and ultimate victory. At the start of the game, you lay out that iconic Ferris wheel and surround it by spaces representing some of the popular areas from the 1893 fair, such as manufacturing, fine art, and electricity. Then, cards are randomly added to these areas, which players will be drafting throughout the game. Each player starts with the same number of cubes they can use to gain influence over one of these areas. On each player's turn, a cube is placed in their chosen area, and they take all the cards in that area. Afterwards, three more cards are drawn to repopulate that space, but they are issued one at a time, starting in the area that was just used, and then moving clockwise. Then, play moves on to the next player. Some cards represent exhibit proposals in one of those five disciplines. Others can gain you influence over some very important people who can give you bonuses later on. And other cards give you a ride on the midway, and most importantly, that big ferris wheel in the middle of it all, while progressing play closer to the end of the round. Once enough midway tickets have been collectively drafted by all players so that Ferris Wheel has made one full revolution, the round is over, and scores for that round are calculated. Players gain influence in one of the five disciplines for having the most cubes in that category. Those players who have a stronghold in one of those areas can play matching cards that they drafted, launching their developed exhibit for the fair. Players gain reputation points at the end of the game based on the diversity of their displayed exhibits. Maybe you can't quite figure out a way to be the most influential that round when it comes to, I don't know, agriculture, but maybe that's because you have the biggest collection of midway tickets as you spent your time at the fair riding that giant wheel over and over. Sure, the game rewards that as well. It can't be all work and no fun, right? After three rounds, the game ends and a winner is declared. In my bio that appears on the 5 by website, World's Fair 1893 is right up at the tippity-top. And for good reason. This game is perfection. The gameplay is clean but exciting. It took no time to learn. It's beautifully themed. With Game Link being always changing and the variations in layout, I find it hard to grow tired of this game and 
Trust me, I've tried. But my favorite part of this game? It's beautiful. The visual design is elegant and impactful. Beth Sobel's artwork is absolutely sublime, and it's one of the many reasons I will eternally be a fan of hers, both personally and professionally. Like most games that are in heavy rotation for me, I've played this game most frequently as a two-player game, and it works extremely well. I have yet to get a four-player game of this going. I don't know why, but with our three-player games being just as enjoyable as the two-player, I can't imagine it would scale poorly with just one more person. World's Fair 1893 is an absolute bargain with its average retail price of about $40, and it's an absolute essential if you don't have it in your collection yet. For the 5 by, I'm Stephanie Stone-Rob, and until next time, stay playful. Bring Your Own Book is a party game, one of a familiar genre of party games. Players take turns drawing a card with a topic written on it, everyone tries to make a joke about that topic, and the person who drew the topic chooses which was the most entertaining. To be honest, I'm not generally a fan of this type of game, which began with Apples to Apples. And I'm very much not a fan of the other granddaddy of the genre, the hugely popular game which starts with C and ends with Ards Against Humanity. It's really not my thing. But Bring Your Own Book is different. Instead of choosing your punchline from a hand of cards, each player has a book they brought to the game. That's the name, Bring Your Own Book. You flip through your book looking for a line or quote that fits the topic of the joke. Topics are things like name of a fast food restaurant, a saying on a motivational poster, a lawn ornament, or the moment in a fantasy story when the quest begins. Since all the responses are quotes from books, you get the authorial voice in the punchlines. It sounds almost like, say, Elmore Leonard, Jane Austen, N.K. Jemison, and John Krakauer sat down together and told the same joke. I love the weirdness of this game. The sight of a table full of people playing a game by intently reading books is almost as funny as the result. The reading phase of each turn typically only lasts a few minutes. Players have as long as they want to search their books until someone finds a quote. Then a timer is flipped over, and everyone else has one minute. If they fail to find a quote in time, they have to read a random line from the book. I find Bring Your Own Book much more creative than the typical everyone-gives-the-punchline-to-a-joke game because the source material is so much more broad. You aren't just choosing a phrase from a handful of cards. You have an entire book of material to choose from. Even the length of the quote is your choice, from a single word to an entire paragraph. Although I think shorter quotes tend to work better, you're likely to lose the thread of the joke if you try to read a lengthy passage. Bring Your Own Book is about you bringing the book, so it can be anything that suits your sense of humor. A gritty detective story, a historical novel, an instructional manual on dog grooming. The most successful books can surprise you. In our game group, the surefire winner is The Cimmerillion by J.R.R. Tolkien. I don't know why, but the Cimmerillion slays us every time. It's also the one exception to my rule to keep your quotes as short as possible. Because you choose the book, you have total control over your source material. That is, until someone wins three rounds. Every time that happens, the players all pass their books to the left. This is my favorite rule in Bring Your Own Book because it forces players to think on their feet. You can't rely on familiar quotes from the favorite novel you know inside and out. That book now belongs to someone else, and you have to use a new book that you may or may not have read or even heard of before. For me, this moment, when you lose access to the book you brought, is when Bring Your Own Book really shines. With a familiar book, often you can immediately think of a quote that works for the punchline, 
but it may not resonate that well with the other players because they don't have your history with the book, or maybe you didn't remember it quite right. If you can even find the quote in time. I've had rounds where I ended up with nothing because I was so focused on a particular quote that I couldn't locate. When you don't know the book is when you have to be really creative, scan quickly, and look for random phrases that make sense in the context of the joke. And sometimes you come up with a real gem. Like the time Joseph Heller's Catch-22 had just been passed to me, and the topic was a catchphrase from an Arnold Schwarzenegger movie. I never read the book, and somehow I stumbled onto the line, it was a hospital that blew up. It was perfect. Although I think I won that round not because of the quote, but because of my valiant, ridiculous attempt to imitate Arnold's accent. Not everyone will love Bring Your Own Book as much as my game group does. It requires players to be funny in front of a group and in a fairly improvisational way, which not everyone is comfortable with. Because the players judge each other, there can be hard feelings for people who take losing personally. It's also vulnerable to metagaming, players choosing a quote not because they think it's the best, but because they want to pick their best friend, or to stop someone from winning, or maybe to make someone win because they're ready to end the game. And it plays best when all players are focused on having fun and being creative rather than on winning. One overly competitive player who isn't in the spirit of the game can really put a damper on things. None of these are criticisms to bring your own book, just a caveat to know your game group when you pull this one out. My only real criticisms are pragmatic. First, in an effort to save space in my tiny house, I mainly read digital books now, which don't really work with Bring Your Own Book. I guess I could bring my iPad, but that doesn't seem like it would be much fun. Second, the game works best with a group of a half dozen or so, and I don't often play in groups that large, so I don't get to play Bring Your Own Book nearly as often as I'd like. But whenever I do, it's a great time. My name is Sarah, and when I don't have my nose in a book, you can find me on Twitter, at Sarah Ovenall. You've been listening to The Five By. Follow us on Twitter at Five By Games. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash fivebygames. Join our BGG Guild, number 2810. Listen to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Or head over to our website, fivebygames.com. From all of us at The Five By, thanks for listening. The Five By is a member of the Inside Voices Network. Find out more at insidevoicesnetwork.com.